welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Europe, Russia, and Eurasian program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Heather Conley. In this episode of Russian Roulette, I sit down with Masha Littman, Senior Associate at the Institute of European, Eurasian, and Russian Studies at George Washington University, and Dr. Ben Noble, Assistant Professor in Russian Politics at the University College in London and Senior Research Fellow at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow. And last but not least, I'm joined by Cyrus Newland, Associate Fellow in the Europe, Eurasia, and Russia program. Today, we discuss the September 13 elections in Russia, their results, and the implications for Alexei Navalny's smart voting strategy. What does this mean for Russia's politics internally as we look ahead to the 2021 Russia Duma elections? We talk about the systemic and non-systemic opposition polling Putin's legitimacy and what the future holds for Russia's future generations. We're looking forward to a great conversation. Let's get started. Welcome back. Ben, let me turn to you. We had uh, an extraordinary number of uh, municipal and regional elections on September the 13th. I think a lot of the results were very much overshadowed by the story of the uh, Novichok poisoning of Alexei Navalny. But I, I would hope you could help us understand, you know, what did the results mean to you? And then, Masha, maybe I'll ask you, what did the results mean to Vladimir Putin? Thanks for that, Heather. It's interesting that you uh, said that the elections were overshadowed by the Novichok poisoning of Alexei Navalny. In Russia itself, that certainly wasn't uh, the case. And that's, of course, a function of the control of many streams of media by the state. They really wanted to downplay that particular story so that they could shine the light on their narrative, which is that the elections, the 13th of September elections, were really victorious for the authorities, for the Kremlin, for United Russia that they were an endorsement of the Kremlin, its response to the coronavirus, and then more broadly, an endorsement of Vladimir Putin himself. You mentioned that there were lots of elections. There certainly were. I think more than 9,000 uh, of municipal, regional, but also federal. We shouldn't forget there were, that there were four uh, by-elections for seats in the state Duma, although really we can ignore those because the major story relates to the gubernatorial elections, uh, the elections for regional assembly, so the parliaments of uh, uh, different subjects in Russia, and also elections for councils for major cities, the capitals of federal subjects. Uh, The Kremlin was definitely pushing this narrative of victory, but also Team Navalny, uh, as you mentioned, were carrying out this smart voting campaign, which is a tactical voting project to try and get people to support the candidate most likely to challenge United Russia. The main point being that Navalny is trying to coordinate the opposition and that uh, historically has been difficult in Russia. A political opposition has been quite fragmented. With smart voting, the goal is to back 
the candidate most likely to take on United Russia and win. And that, of course, can lead to certain grumbling that sometimes that would lead to uh, smart voting, uh, leading to a recommendation for the support of, say, a member of the systemic opposition, so uh, the Communist Party, rather than uh, a member of the non-systemic, quote-unquote, true political opposition. Uh, So that's sort of my sort of broad brushstroke take on the elections. Both the Kremlin and Navalny are claiming victory, uh, but that really brings to the forefront what victory means in elections. And one final thing before um, I let Masha give her point of view is that really, rather than focusing on the narrative of victory from the Kremlin, we should be focusing on the increasing costs of engineering such victories. So we can look at what um, Andrea Shedler, a political scientist, calls the menu of manipulation. So the ways in which the Kremlin can unlevel the electoral playing field. And that list is growing. And the costs of those elements of manipulation are increasing. Uh, Because the Kremlin realises that the 13th of September elections are a dress rehearsal for next year's state parliamentary, uh, federal uh, uh, parliamentary elections. Uh, And if they were to lose control of the state Duma, then Russian politics could look very different um, to how it looks now. So the Kremlin is making sure that they're putting even more resources into making sure that they win these types of elections. The stakes are very high. And thank you for always correcting me. I put my Western glasses on when I analyze this, and it's so important for you to (laughs) highlight, but that's not what the Russian people see. So thank you so much. Masha would love your take on this. Well, I would agree that the election on uh, September 13 was mostly victorious for the Kremlin. All uh, gubernatorial races were won by Kremlin-supported candidates. This is different from the way it happened two years ago in 2018, when um, in four cases, in four gubernatorial races, there were runoffs. And candidates not supported by the Kremlin won those elections, uh, much to, I think, dismay of the Kremlin. And the Kremlin had to deal with that and dealt with it. Now, as to uh, uh, Navalny's team and his Vote Smart campaign, well, I would say it's a modest success, and it's a success that's localized. Um, Navalny is unparalleled in uh, his capacity to organize cohesive, loyal, and efficient groups of his supporters in the region, and this in a country where opposition politics is not encouraged, to say the least. However, not in every region where he was able to organize such a group, those groups could claim success. At least in two, they did, uh, and both are in Siberia. The question is whether the Kremlin could actually prevent those victories of members of Navalny's team. That was at the municipal level. Those were not gubernatorial races. Those were not elections to uh, local legislatures. Those were um, municipal assemblies. And I would argue that the Kremlin probably was able to interfere, but unwilling to do so. The municipal level is not very important. Rough interference may have caused undesired public reaction. And the Kremlin likely decided, the Kremlin handlers uh, likely decided that they can live with it that people in in Tomsk and Novosibirsk uh, who pride themselves on difficult victories will not be a serious problem. As for your earlier question, what this election on September 13 this year means for Putin, I would just say that uh, a very recent polling result by the Center, Russia's major independent polling agency, 
And it showed that Putin's approval rating, which Levada Center takes every month, has risen and reached a level of 69%, which is not bad at all, given uh, the uh, aftermath or actually the ongoing pandemic of COVID-19 and given the deteriorated economy. I want to pull Cyrus into this conversation, but I want to have sort of one set of questions for both of you about Alexei Navalny. Recent days, we've had some conversation that Mr. Navalny will plan to return to Russia. Just gave a very important interview in Der Spiegel. You had the chairman of the Duma saying that Vladimir Putin saved Alexei Navalny's life. If Navalny returns to Russia, what does this mean in that, uh, Masha, as you mentioned, the organizational value of Navalny's movement? I mean, clearly the Kremlin was very concerned about this and perhaps uh, amplified by uh, events in Belarus, the ongoing protest in Habarovsk. How are they going to deal with Navalny as they head towards the, the Duma elections? Ben, let me start with you and then we can turn to Masha again. Certainly Team Navalny, and I'm just using that as a shorthand to refer to Navalny and uh, his uh, support group, uh, especially the leadership. They have been quite bullish in what they're saying. So even before it was clear that Navalny was going to make a full recovery, they were making sure that the organization was laser focused on smart voting. So I think one takeaway from that is that Navalny has created an organization with individuals who can carry on the operations without him when he's incapacitated in a foreign hospital. So I think that's important to stress that he has created an organization that has uh, maybe its own capacity to carry on with Without him. We certainly know that Team Navalny, when it comes to using smart voting next year in 2021, they're going to be targeting uh, the single mandate district races for the 225 seats that are up for grabs in the 450 seat state Duma. And they promised to release compromat on sitting deputies uh, with a view to putting together these slick videos that we're used to seeing from the Anti-Corruption Foundation uh, with allegations of corruption relating to individuals. And they're hoping that that will attract the attention of people who maybe aren't aware of smart voting and maybe aren't aware of these allegations of corruption in relation to certain individuals running in these single mandate district races. And uh, single mandate district, that just means first past the post. The other 225 seats for the state Duma are filled by party list voting. So we know that Team Navalny is being very bullish. They're wanting to build on what they see as the, yes, small steps, but successes of smart voting in the 13th of September elections. But equally, the Kremlin and United Russia have responded. They are now saying... Uh, that they are hoping to win 210 out of the 225 single mandate district races for the state Duma. And the reason why they're so confident in saying that they're going to win that is because they can direct administrative resources to make sure that they're in the best position to win those races, to frustrate Team Navalny's narrative about uh, the politicians that are selected to run in those particular races. So I think the Kremlin is taking smart voting seriously, but they're also making it clear that they uh, are not uh, overly worried, at least publicly. And they're saying that they're confident that they might be able to get another constitutional majority, which is really quite extraordinary. When you look at the polling for United Russia, it's just above 30 uh, percent. We know that certain politicians don't like, even if they're a member of the party, they don't like running uh, underneath its flag because they regard the, the party's brand as being toxic. So one of the reasons why these first-past-the-post 
races for the state Duma are so important is because the party's brand is less important. It's more about the individuals and it's also more about the particular resources that can be mobilised on the one side by the authorities, but on the other side by Team Navalny. Ben, this sounds really competitive to me in a, in a, in a unique way. Masha, how do you think, again, I, I'm focusing on the compromise. I mean, this has been Navalny's signature, these slick videos that get enormous downloads. Is it having an effect that the element of corruption, the lack of satisfaction from the pension reforms that the Kremlin instituted to just the level of, of inefficiency and corruption, is this a winning conversation? Or quite frankly, the state has so many resources. This looks competitive, but it won't be competitive, if you know what I mean. Navalny's videos exposing corruption um, at uh, very high levels of uh, the Russian establishment uh, have been extremely successful with the public. Uh, millions and sometimes many millions uh, have watched uh, these videos over the years. And I think this is where uh, Navalny's uh, main major success lies with the public. Uh, his political success, I think, is uh, not as uh, impressive as his success as a, an anti-corruption crusader. But while millions are watching these videos and admire them, and Navalny is very good at it, uh, the videos are smart, they are also funny, they explain difficult schemes in an easy way, totally enjoyable uh, and, and, and easy to, uh, uh, to figure out what he's talking about. However, um, in public opinion polls, when a question is asked, who would you vote for uh, for president uh, if elections were next Sunday? This shows about 40% for Putin, uh, and this is, well, the election is not scheduled for next Sunday, and uh, uh, it's still way ahead. But for Navalny, it's, two, it's 2%. So I don't think Navalny as a politician is appreciated uh, to the same extent as Navalny, an exposer, a, an anti-corruption crusader. As to uh, what the government thinks uh, about Navalny and its strategy, I think what we've, uh, we are witnessing these days is a change of policy toward Navalny, change of Kremlin policy. Um, it used to be Navalny was, of course, harassed, and he was uh, under administrative arrests repeatedly uh, for sometimes as long as several weeks. He was physically attacked. However, there was a sense that the Kremlin thought of Navalny as safer for the Kremlin at large than in jail, than locked up. Probably the Kremlin did not want to make him a martyr, a, a victim out of Navalny. Now, with the poisoning, of course, we don't know for sure who's behind it, but uh, the reaction of the establishment, which does not show even a modicum of sympathy, which uh, in uh, uh, state television shows and uh, in statements made by politicians, there is uh, a desire to discredit Navalny, to humiliate him, to smear him. So the suspicion is growing uh, about somebody in the establishment being behind this hideous act. Of course, uh, the Kremlin is also thinking of what Navalny can do, what his policy is going to be uh, if and when he comes back. But when uh, will he come back? And will the Kremlin actually allow him to come back? There's no obvious way not to let him in Russia. He's a Russian citizen. But um, I wouldn't I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't rule it out. Some kind of trick, some kind of uh, stratagem to prevent Navalny from coming back. So the Kremlin would not have to face uh, his elect electoral policies. And also, I would say that lately the Kremlin's policy has gotten more heavy handed. 
The Kremlin is more prone to use force, to use violence. The stakes at the Duma election next year in 2021 are high. So to what extent uh, Navalny's team is a serious challenge? Uh, We should be thinking uh, what's going to happen to those people. Thanks, Masha. Cyrus, let me turn this over to you to ask some questions. Masha, I'd like to pick up on something you just ended on and something you said earlier about the Kremlin's handers not being particularly worried about, you know, Navalny team victories in municipal elections in, in Tomsk and Novosibirsk. There's a narrative that the Kremlin has traditionally tolerated a limited amount of opposition, and it actually valued that as a way of sort of endowing legitimacy on its own elections and operations. But in a sense, it seems that has reversed course over the past couple of months. You see it in the poison of Alexei Navalny, but also in some other indicators, uh, repression of journalists in Moscow, including the high profile case of um, Ivan Safranov. Uh, you have the arrest of the governor in Khabarovsk, Furgal. Lots of Western observers have noted a sort of flurry of repression following the results of the uh, July referendum. Does the Kremlin feel fundamentally threatened? Um, and is that narrative in some way contradictory to the idea that Putin is surrounded by a bubble of information and that his approval ratings are once again high and that by a lot of indicators he should feel relatively secure? Could you draw out what, what, what could be characterized as a sort of contradiction? Well, I think the Kremlin is anything but relaxed at this point in time. And I certainly agree with you that the recent trend has been lower tolerance, and I would say zero tolerance to uh, opposition politics, to independent political opposition in Russia, and less tolerance to other expression of opposition activism um, having to do with the media that you mentioned. Also, there is a case of a uh, very hard sentence for um, Yuri Dmitriev, an activist that uh, dealt with uh, uncovering Stalin's crimes, um, a member of memorial organization. 13 years in jail was his uh, his new sentence. I think there is clearly a trend of less tolerance. Whether the Kremlin feels challenged? Well, I think government management has become much more challenging. And there are many reasons for that. And uh, the uh, COVID-19 is a huge challenge and the uh, economic deterioration that resulted from it that hit Russia just as it hit other countries but maybe uh, worse so in Russia because it is combined with a decline of the price of oil. This is a serious challenge and uh, stakes are very high and challenges are growing. So there is absolutely no reason for Kremlin to relax and it doesn't look relaxed. Not Putin, not the Kremlin handlers. Uh, They can congratulate themselves on their their success with regional and local elections on September 13. But of course, they are fully aware of the challenge, the bigger challenge that lies ahead, the Duma election in 2021. And we already see arrests that may have to do directly with some of the regions where the Kremlin may face higher challenge arrests of people who are influential in their regions, one in Krasnoyarsk and uh, another in Irkutsk. Just recently, uh, an influential figure's son was arrested on charges of fraud. And analysts here in Russia, of course, related to the fact that Irkutsk has always been a difficult region for the Kremlin, difficult in terms of achieving the desired election results. 
So, uh, Masha, I'm going to turn to, to Ben uh, quickly. So you have this, these confluence of factors of the government's just having a really difficult time managing economics, the pandemic. They're less tolerant. They're very afraid. They know the stakes are high. But public opinion doesn't seem to be affected by this as far as the support uh, for uh, Vladimir Putin and his, his regime. So there's real disconnect there. Ben, I'd love you to, you know, help us think through that disconnect and what that would mean. And I want to pick up on something you said earlier. You talked about this menu of manipulation. So thinking about as we look between now and the Duma elections in 2021, we're not sure when they will happen. We believe next fall, but they could be brought forward. It depends, I, I suppose. What would a menu of manipulation look like? I, I think taking Masha's point that arrests may be a tool uh, much more heavy-handed tactics than, than we have seen. Welcome your thoughts on that. Thanks, Heather. Uh, before I jump in, but it might in fact allow me to answer those questions, you said that all of this sounds quite competitive, and there seems to be a tension there because I think in certainly lots of general conversation outside of Russia, in the West, about politics in Russia, people regard it as not being competitive. This is a system that's dominated by Putin almost personally on every decision. Of course, that's not true, but it does suggest that at a very basic level, there is very little political competition. I think what we have to realise is that there is competition, but it's of different types. And what the Kremlin sees as its job is to vary the level of competition in a way that's going to suit it. So Cyrus mentioned that a certain amount of political opposition might be tolerated insofar as it can be used as a data point by Russia uh, to maybe uh, members of the international community who would condemn Russia for not having political competition. Well, they can say, oh, look, uh, certain members of the opposition have won seats in this particular council. So therefore, competition must be alive. I think we have to be really quite sensitive to that nuanced picture that Competition is there, but it might not be of the type of political competition that we're used to seeing in consolidated liberal democracies. And we always have to remember that the Kremlin is doing whatever it can, and also the authorities in the regions and uh, across Russia are doing whatever they can to make sure that that political competition is able to be present, but is able to be present in a way that doesn't threaten existentially the uh, incumbents in particular positions of power. To the question of this disconnect that we see between the troubles that are facing the Kremlin regarding the pandemic, but also economic problems and Putin's approval rating, I think we have to bear um, a number of things in mind. One of the reasons why Putin is able to secure such high ratings is because of Kremlin management of uh, many channels of state media. Also, the Kremlin's ability to block potential challenges uh, to him over the years, and I'm not just referring to Alexei Navalny. Uh, and so very often Russians, uh, when they're asked questions, when they're asked by polling agencies, Putin is uh, just the default very often. And insofar as there isn't something that's uh, a huge crisis, cataclysmic change, then uh, Putin will awful, often be defaulted to as the person that they approve of his activities. When it comes, though, to questions of trust, there we see very different 
dynamics. And uh, that's another way in which, you know, this picture becomes much more complicated. And in fact, it's the complexity that's the story and not the broader picture. And, and one of the reasons why the broader picture of Putin's approval ratings go up uh, isn't necessarily the narrative that we should focus on, is that because it's precisely the narrative that the Kremlin would want us to focus on. And insofar as we want to be intellectually honest, then we have to appreciate these different ways in which uh, the trends might, in fact, um, be related. So here, the, the trend relating to Putin's uh, um, uh, trust in Putin is much more consistent uh, with uh, maybe the uncertainties that Russians see within the country. You mentioned that we don't know when the state Duma elections are going to take place. They're currently scheduled for September 2021. But I think it seems to be that an increasing number of voices are saying that it could be brought forward to April. Ella Pamphilova, who's the head of the Central Electoral Commission, has said that that shift would take place to convenience voters so that it would uh, be easier for them to vote, but also would be less troubling holding vote at the beginning of the, the school year uh, in Russia, which happens on the 1st of September. But of course, I would say that that's just another item on the menu of manipulation. The elections would be brought forward precisely so that the Kremlin could get these really important elections out the way. And also hopefully before this is hopefully for the Kremlin, before the attitudinal situation could get worse, maybe before economic troubles could become uh, uh, even more pronounced and in a way that really would uh, uh, continue to hurt the Kremlin. So that's certainly one of the items of the menu of manipulation. Uh, other things relate to types of activities that we saw in the run-up to the 13th of September election. So say the blocking of certain opposition candidates from getting on the ballot in the first place, all the way through to law enforcement and then unidentified thugs harassing individuals, but also breaking into uh, offices of opposition organisations. Uh, we, we can also point to sort of new political technologies that were originally introduced ostensibly uh, given the epidemiological situation in Russia and we saw them introduced to the nationwide vote so things like three-day voting uh, things like the ability for people to vote outside of polling places the evidence uh, that we've seen so far seems to suggest that three-day voting is really attractive for the Kremlin because it allows them to mobilize those portions of the electorate that would uh, vote for the authorities but also it means uh, it, it increases uh, the scope that they have to carry out other forms of manipulation. That in conjunction with uh, polling away from polling stations, these things are the types of things that frustrate the work of uh, election observers. And so there's many more opportunities for individuals uh, to carry out forms of, of electoral falsification. So that's sort of broadly uh, my response to the different portions of your question. Thanks so much, Ben. I always think about the, the Kremlin's managed democracy, but I think this is really managed political competition. I'm going to refine that uh, that comment. Cyrus, let me turn it back over to you for, for a question. This goes to both Ben and Masha. I'd love for either of you to take either part of the question. But I'm curious about the, the regional breakdown of sort of support for both the United Russia Party and for Putin himself ahead of 2021 State Duma elections. In the Far East, uh, for the past several elections, we've observed um, slightly lower level support for Kremlin-backed initiatives. Increasingly in Arctic regions, in Kolmi and Arkhangelsk in the north as well, some of those same regions have exhibited protests over the past few years, including around the environment. Um, so I'm curious if either one of you could paint a sort of regional breakdown of where support for Putin and the United Russia Party is lower and higher. 
Yeah, indeed. Russia is vast, and uh, we have 80-plus regions in Russia. Uh, and as analysts usually put it in Russia, different regions have different political cultures. And indeed, uh, regions in the um, Far East, in parts of Siberia, in the north, you mentioned uh, Komi and Arhangelsk, are different in that they are more competitive, more prone to organize protests. Protests are not in common in Russia. Political protests are, but socioeconomic are not, and sometimes they are quite dogged. There are regions where the administration can easily get away with rigging, egregious rigging, and can report almost 100% turnout and almost 100% vote for pro-Kremlin forces. Such examples uh, can be found in uh, North Caucasus, in some parts of southern Siberia, ethnic regions in southern Siberia. But there are also others, um, other regions where rigging is too costly. I would quote one of uh, members of Navalny Bat team who won a seat on the municipal assembly in Tomsk, um, Ksenia Fadeva, a young woman who said there is no tradition of falsification in Tomsk. That was what she said after she won. And this means that the Kremlin uh, realizes that if it interferes or if it encourages local administrators to interfere in a rough manner, that would backfire. And uh, they have to draw on more sophisticated manipulative ways and even allow opposition candidates uh, win, at least at the municipal level. Ethnic republics in general happen to be regions where rigging is more common. And I would remind that in the four unwelcome runoffs at gubernatorial elections in 2018, three were east of the Urals, and only one was in central Russia. So that's how different uh, these uh, these different regions can be. Also, there are party preferences. There is a, uh, uh, should I say, historical or traditional leaning towards Zhirinovsky party in the Far East, and there are other preferences of this sort. So the country is pretty diverse in this respect, and the Kremlin has to take that into account and actually treat regions uh, one by one uh, as they get prepared for a nationwide election. I certainly uh, agree with everything that Mash has just said, and I think it's something that we can sometimes lose sight of, especially in conversations where we're trying to talk about elections that are taking place across uh, all regions uh, in the country. The, the Kremlin definitely takes each region and then within each region, each locality, it has to uh, on its own terms because a formula that might work, a particular, I hate to use the phrase again, but man many of manipulation in one region just won't work in another, partially because, as Masha said, there are historical reasons, tendencies, attitudes, uh, possibilities in one region just aren't possible in another. But in a sort of more uh, nuanced way and in a way that gets to uh, how politics is maybe different in Russia uh, than it sometimes characterized. The Kremlin is not only having to deal with citizens, but it's also having to deal with local and regional elites who have their own preferences. And the Kremlin, even if it wouldn't necessarily agree with the preferences of a particular group of uh, elites in the regions and the localities, it might just make sense for the Kremlin not to get involved in so far as the status quo can prevail. Because for the Kremlin, the status quo is fine in so far as it provides a certain 
certain measure of certainty. The Kremlin doesn't like things um, uh, when conditions on the ground change because it means they have less control. And that's why within the presidential administration, there are different, uh, what the Russian word for it would be, curators, people whose job it is to curate different regions to make sure uh, that different groups of local and uh, regional elites are happy, aren't going to change their tune, aren't going to push back uh, on the Kremlin in a way maybe that they haven't before. Uh, and, and we can sort of see a demonstration of that by looking at the Far East again. So we know that the demonstrations in Khabarovsk have been going on for an incredibly long time. The Kremlin's response seems to be one of ignoring. They're just trying to let people continue to go out on the street in the hope that it's far away. It's far away from Moscow. They're going to continue doing it. Uh, let's just not add uh, fuel to the fire by drawing attention to it, by sponsoring a heavy crackdown by law enforcement. Let's just uh, let people go out on the street and hope that people will get bored by it. But we also know that the Kremlin is really keen to nip in the bud any suggestion of contagion that this protest mood might spread. Because Cyrus, as you already mentioned, there are a large and I say growing number of regional um, and regionally specific protests that the Kremlin is very keen don't coalesce into a broader protest move that might somehow unify the narrative of what can uh, be processed uh, involving very different segments of Russian society around very different uh, subjects. So some of them relating to ecology and other, uh, others relating to politics. Uh, and, and so we saw that the Kremlin uh, definitely intervened in the uh, Jewish Autonomous Okrug to make sure that the protest mood in Khabarovsk didn't spill over. So we know that the Kremlin is having to manage this all the time and it goes back again to this idea of manage democracy, manage political competition uh, but also managing uh, facts on the ground and managing people's expectations as to what is is possible and how they can um, uh, sort of exercise uh, their rights by demonstrating on the streets. Uh, lots of that was um, uh, pushed back against by the Kremlin uh, by pointing to the pandemic, not allowing people to go out on the streets, um, uh, pushing back against different forms of social protest. But but going back to the main point, yeah, we should never lose sight of the fact that it's a cliche, but Russia's large and it's complex. And that means that the Kremlin um, has to work very hard to make sure that that complexity doesn't get out of hand. But it also means that the opposition and Team Navalny can realise those areas of vulnerability and challenge their resources accordingly, much like they did uh, for the 30th of September elections. What a fascinating uh, insight into the complexities. And I have to say, Ben, as you were talking, I'm like, this is exhausting. The energy that this takes uh, and the focus of it and the competing interests, I have to say, I don't know where there's time for the Kremlin to do their, their international activities because this is just exhausting. But uh, that's a, an incredible insight. Thank you. My last question, very briefly, before we say farewell, and thank you, this has been an extraordinary conversation. We at CSIS are really trying to think about new voices, younger voices coming from Russia uh, and how they think about foreign and security issues, but how they think about their future. Uh, let me turn first to Masha and then Ben, I'll let you have the, the last say. What are Russia's younger people thinking about this dynamic, this managed political competition? Are they just accepting of it? Are they fighting for a different future? Help us understand what this younger generation is thinking about this. Masha? Younger generation, of course, is different from their parents and especially great-grandparents. 
But I would say the difference lies primarily not in the political realm, not in uh, the younger people's perception of politics. I would say that in general terms, if you look at the results of public opinion polls, younger people are not very keen on politics. They are very different in what they use as their sources of information. And uh, this is a question that pollsters ask all the time. What are your primary source of information? Is it television? Is it the internet? Is it social networks? Uh, there are other sources on the list. Uh, so younger people obviously naturally tend to rely much more on uh, sources that are not television, the internet and social networks. This might change their perceptions of certain issues, but this does not make them more politically engaged, or I would say more interested in political engagement. This is not the fact. They um, have different attitude toward social and uh, ethical and uh, other issues that have to do with a lot different perception of LGBT, for instance, different perception of gender issues. In this, they differ from their parents, especially their grandparents, but not in politics. The general attitude is that of passivity. Politics is not interesting. And I would say this is true of the Russian people at large. People are not naive or stupid. They uh, take a very shrewd perception of the Russian establishment. They realize that members of the establishment are often corrupt, that they enrich themselves at our expense. They don't care about us people. Uh, This is, they are not shy to say this in public opinion polls, but they don't believe that political engagement is an instrument uh, that it is for them, the people, that they can use to make their lives better. There are other ways to take care of yourself and your family, to, to care about your family livelihood. And young people are not different in this respect. It's the same kind of perception that politics is not for us. Ben, your thoughts. Thanks, Masha. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. And I'm pleased to see, you know, speaking as an academic, an increasing number of academics are focusing on this question. What do young people think? How do their attitudes differ uh, uh, to uh, maybe middle-aged Russians and older Russians? So I'm, I'm going to say two things. Responding to what Masha said, and I agree, of course, with everything that she said, uh, but I would say that insofar as young people now have a broader set of information sources, even if they're not involved in politics now, if they're less dependent on state media, then that does mean that if, when they grow up, they become more involved in politics, then it could be that they're more sceptical of uh, particular Kremlin positions on certain issues. So there is there could be a seed of hope there, although, of course, there are other factors that might uh, push back against that. Uh, and the second point that I'd make, you mentioned, uh, Heather, that this is all exhausting, that it's complex. It's complex for the Kremlin. It's also complex for people who watch the country. So I'll admit that I haven't read, but I'm looking forward to reading a report that's uh, just come out by the Levada Centre and the Centre for European Policy Analysis, where they dig into uh, polling data of uh, Russians of different ages. And uh, I've just, uh, uh, you know, flipped through it quickly. And it seems as though it gives a really useful overview of how young people's attitudes differ. And also some correctives against maybe what we might imagine would be the story, that being that young people uh, are always going to be less keen on Putin than their elders, are always going to be more pro-Western than their elders. Uh, I I think the report's going to give some really important nuance. And it's important to uh, take 
take into account that nuance uh, rather than just uh, generalize all young people as having a, a certain cluster of attitudes, never mind all of the sort of nuance that we have to introduce to make sense of different attitudes uh, across Russia, that the story for young people in Moscow and St. Petersburg might be very different to young people in uh, a small village in Chukotka for example. So I think it's certainly something that we uh, need to focus on. But it could be that the, the attitudes of younger people does provide a glimmer of hope that maybe relations between Russia and Western countries could improve, but it might take some time. Well, Ben, I always like to say, because the, the world is providing us with such a profound set of challenges, we have to end every conversation on a positive note, or it's just going to get harder and harder to do our work. So thank you for ending on a positive note. And uh, thank you both again. This has been a fantastic discussion. Cyrus, thank you for joining uh, and adding your thoughtful insights as well. Thanks to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Masha. That's it for our show today. We'll provide a link to all the guest bios in the show's notes. You can follow Ben Noble on Twitter at Ben H. Noble. And you can listen to Masha Littman's hosting her insightful conversations on the Ponar's Eurasia podcast on Russia and Eurasia. For those of you who haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and are leaving us a rating and review. If you're not an iTunes user, you can stream the podcast on Spotify. And again, keep spreading the word. And as always, none of this could be possible without the hard behind-the-seats work that makes this podcast possible. Thanks, as always, so much to Research Associate and Program Manager Roxana Gabudulina and our entire CSIS External Relations team. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to a future podcast with you. Mm -hmm.